0: Hi, welcome to our Tricio podcast, and we're also going to make this into a YouTube video. I'm Jerry Salaya. I'm Tricio's chief strategist, and I'm interviewing John Calverley, Tricio's chief economist, today because we're going to be speaking about
1: bubbles. Hi, John. Yes, so my name is John Calverley. I'm a chief economist at uh, Tricio. Um, I spent much of my career at American Express, so starting as an economist, uh, becoming chief economist. Later, I worked at Standard Chartered, uh, head of macroeconomic research. Um, during that period, um, I was mostly working with American Express and then Standard Chartered's private bank, and to some extent with uh, other investors, hedge funds, uh, real investors, etc. Um, so, mostly on the buy side. Um, during my career, I was also a chairman of the Society of Business Economists, now called Society of Professional Economists. Um, and had various other roles, uh, the European um, Money Forum, um, also member of the US National Business Economic Issues Council. Um, so, so various roles. But now we're going to go down memory lane, which is
0: relevant because back in 2004, you published a book, right? Correct. And What was the title of the book, John?
1: Bubbles and how to survive them.
0: Did you survive?
1: Uh, I survived, yep,
0: yep. Um, (laughs) Very good. (laughs) All right. I just remember you were on TV a heck of a lot from 2004 up until like 2006. Is that right? Remember the UK housing bubble and stuff? Because I remember seeing you being interviewed.
1: Yeah, we had a promotional tour uh, in in the UK and also in the US um, in late 2004. And then I sort of became known as Mr. Bubbles for a while. And um, so during that time, obviously, uh, housing markets were going up in the U.K. still and in the U.S., um, and people kept uh, asking me about them.
0: But you were resilient because during the 2004-2007 period, the markets were just going up, up, up. I was like, you know, Elon Musk of Tesla. Stonking was a word, right? Because shares made new highs, house prices went up. But yet you persisted in saying, watch out, guys, there's something wrong here.
1: Yeah, I mean, the, the trouble with bubbles is that they can expand for much longer than you, you think feasible. I mean, if you think of the definition of a bubble, it, to my mind, it's simply that uh, uh, prices have become out of whack with fundamentals. But the point about a bubble is that they keep on getting out of whack and they get more out of whack and it can last a very long time. So just because you see a bubble or think you see a bubble doesn't mean that it's going to crash the next day or the next week or even the next year. It just means that it's already out, outside fundamentals.
0: That's a very, very good way of putting it, John. Thank you. Now, again, down memory lane, do you remember March 2007 at Edinburgh? Yes. The SBE and Bloomberg put together a seminar for a bunch of clients. And then, you know, and Edinburgh means that they captured most of the Scottish Scottish fund industry. So we had a lot of big names there. And I was there as like the warm-up act, talking about currency markets and ducking and diving and stuff. And I left them nice. You know, the audience was well-prepared for you. They were happy. They were chilled. They were all, you know, content. Then you set up, and this is my memory of it, of course, and in the period of like half an hour to 45 minutes, showed slide after slide of a slide of what was happening in the US housing market, which wasn't sustainable. And I tell you, you killed that audience. And I'm not saying that in a good way. These guys were saying, What? We're happy with stock markets going up. We're happy with house prices going. Up. And you were saying such meaningful stuff is the only way I can describe it in terms of economic analysis, in terms of background and data, and basically numbers that they were left thinking, yeah, all right, we got a problem.
1: Was that your intention? (laughs) Well, by that time, of course, the the U.S. housing bubble uh, was already starting to to pop. Prices actually peaked in 2006. And I think it was already evident that uh, they were starting to come down. And the worry then was that as that as those uh, prices came down, that would create a lot of problems in in the whole economy. And that's, of course, exactly what we, we saw. Because if you go back to 2004, when I wrote the the book, then uh, I argued that the U.S. housing bubble was starting and probably had a lot further to go, which was exactly right. And I worried that it could become a big problem in the end. What eventually transpired was really my worst case scenario. Um, I would hoped that wouldn't happen, but it went up so much between 2004 and 2006. And then it turned out that there was so much rash lending all the subprime, uh, all the leverage that we saw, and that led to the, the fact that the housing market took down the whole banking system. Really,
0: that's right. It took a long time for the economy to recover. Not just the U.S., but the global
1: economy. Yeah, I mean there were policy mistakes as well. Uh, the the uh, failing to bail out Lehman was a huge mistake, um, and that led to the worst of the recession. But you know, these things happen.
0: Do you think? quote unquote, we both financial markets, retail investors and regulators and the people who regulate the banks and the funds have learned from their mistakes.
1: Yes, I do. Actually, I think there's um, been a lot of progress now in in trying to really deal with financial stability in general. So um, what the central bankers have done now is they've said, "Okay, interest rates, monetary policy that is still aimed at inflation and the economy. But now we need financial stability policy so we we play about with capital ratios for banks we play about with uh, rules on mortgage lending trying to control housing bubbles even commercial real estate bubbles they don't do so much on the stock market side but that's because they still tend to think that uh, a a crash in stocks is not necessarily going to bring the economy down it does tend to be crashes in real estate that brings economies down
0: okay that's a really good point and that's something for people to keep in mind as as we go through the next few years i would suspect so john i know you've written another book as well i think that was written after the uh credit crisis
1: yeah what what that was essentially was an i told you so book um which <laughs> came out in, uh, came out in early 2009 um really as a second edition effectively but updating and saying look you know it's happened um you know what to expect now at that point of course one had to start getting more bullish because um once things went down um then eventually they'd come back up again
0: that's that's again a very good thing to keep in mind and that's something that atrisa you brought to our attention i think is in april and may you know 2020 where you were saying guys we had a big crash but the authorities are doing really good things here and you know maybe we should either one maintain weights in asset classes like you know uk stocks and us stocks which we did because of you and also start to look for the upside which again worked out pretty well because right. as you've as seen the recovery has been astounding Right. so yep. well done thumbs up you can't see them thumbs up now <laughs> can you share your
1: bubble list with us please yes let me uh share this this is a list that i've developed for my book it's actually borrowed from uh Stephen King um, but developed substantially from there so basically what it is if I can explain it, it's a, it's a checklist for bubbles because one of the problems in identifying a bubble is there's no simple way to, to tell whether something is a bubble or not uh, you can't just have a, a simple sort of mathematical tool or simply look at valuations, sometimes high valuations are justified so what this does is, is look at a whole range of different things and ask if you've got most of these ticked, then the chances are you have a bubble. And some of them are about valuations. So, for example, rapidly rising prices is, is, is a flag to start with.
0: All right, I one expect- second, John, because we're doing a podcast as well, just, just for people who don't have access to the YouTube video. Uh, what John is showing us here is from uh, Tricia's website, uh, tricia advisorscom and the blog section, I believe, right, John? It's in the blog, yeah. Yep. And it's a checklist for bubbles and it has 15 things to look out for. And if it's okay with you, John, we'll go through them from number one to number 15. Is that all right? Sure. Sure. All right. Number one is rapidly rising prices.
1: Right. So obviously, usually people don't worry about a bubble if prices are not rising fast. Although there is a point sometimes in a bubble where they're high and they stay high for a while and, and then they crash. but. Um, but usually, it's when prices are really bubbling that, that people start to think about a bubble. Number two is high expectations for price rises. Um, that's obviously harder to tell. But if everybody is bullish, if everybody thinks that prices will keep on going up, um, if your taxi driver is telling you, you know, stock market's the place to be or housing's the place to be, that's a signal to get to get concerned. The third one is valuations, overvaluation versus history. So, again, we, there's various ways of looking at both stocks and, and property. Uh, you can look at property in relation to rents, for example. You can look at housing in relation to people's incomes. Um, and if it's very high compared to where it's been historically, that could be a concern. With stocks, you might look at the cyclically adjusted price earnings ratio, for example, from Robert Schiller. Um, this, this late takes the last 10 years of earnings and compares with the current price. And when that's high, Uh, That could be a concern. So you're really trying to see where valuations have been in the past. Where are they now? If they're very expensive now compared with the past, that's a concern. Uh, Number four is overvaluation versus rationality. Um, So if it looks as though this market, uh, this stock or this uh, uh, segment of the market is wildly overvalued based on what seems to be rational expectations for earnings over the future, for profits, uh, for the outlook for that company, for example. Um, Then again, it's a flag. The fifth one, um, several years into a business cycle. um, Now, typically, bubbles occur late in a business cycle. Um, That's because usually a recession makes people cautious. Uh, Usually stocks go down in a recession anyway, so does housing. So it usually takes a few years for people to get comfortable, to get caution to lose their caution uh, start taking more risks so typically you you only see a bubble several years into a business cycle and that's sort of what we saw with the stock market bubble uh, in the mid-2000s the sixth one um, a new rationale for higher prices Um, this is an interesting one i mean typically there is there's some reason that people put forward for why it's different this time for why this particular market or stock or whatever housing should be higher than before. So it could be something like um, we're in a much lower interest rate environment, or it could be in the US, for example, it was the fact that, uh, that mortgage mortgages were now available to a lot more people that was driving prices. Uh, it could be something to do with scarcity, um, but there's usually some kind of rationale and that rationale does usually make sense up to a point. Um, but then usually prices go way beyond that.
0: So that would be like the dot-com era where everybody was looking at new technology, things things like that, John?
1: Yes, I mean, if you think of, of where we've been over the last year or two, I think the rationale for tech stocks being high at the moment uh, is that they, they're they not affected by COVID directly. and Indeed, they get, they've been boosted by the COVID effect. And I had the anticipation that even when we defeat COVID, uh, that people will still work from home or they'll still be um, using Zoom and, Using uh, online shopping and so on, so it's, it's a big fillip for the for tech stocks. Uh, number seven is talk of a new paradigm. Um, I would say right now the paradigm is that we have negative real interest rates, real interest rates. So in the in the U.S., for example, the 10-year uh, TIPS yield, the, the, the inflation-protected bonds, uh, what is it about minus three quarters of a percent at the moment? So negative real interest rates. Now, if you think that uh, stocks Um, companies' revenues and their profits will go up with inflation, then you're going to discount at a negative interest rate. That means that future earnings are are worth a lot of money, Um, far more than if you had a positive interest rate. And that I think has been a key thing driving particularly tech stocks and also particularly stocks where uh, they haven't even got any earnings yet because you don't have to worry about the earnings the next couple of years if they're not there. But if you think they're going to make earnings 10 years, 15 years, even 20 years down the road, and you're discounting that with a negative interest rate, uh, you almost can't go wrong.
0: That sounds like dangerous thinking. But yes, I
1: see your point. It, yeah, I mean, obviously, the danger is that some of those companies may never make profits. Um, There's a question marks over those. Um, I'll come on to talk about that in a moment. Um, the, another number eight is uh, new investors drawn into the market. Uh, we obviously saw that with the housing bubble in the US back in the early 2000s when we had all the subprime borrowers coming in people who previously would only have uh, have rented suddenly they they were able to get mortgages and that that made a huge difference and in stock markets uh, over the last year we've seen a lot of young people drawn in by um, zero pricing for um, trades i think that's brought in a lot of, of new traders Number nine is new entrepreneurs in the area. Um, in housing, we saw that with uh, people coming in and offering seminars on how to flip houses. Um, I guess in, in, in stocks, we've obviously seen uh, the, the SPACs, the SPACs. Um, so these things have, have, have really brought in some new people into the area. Um, number 10 is strong popular media interest. Uh, again, with the housing bubble, we saw that big time with loads and loads of TV programs, um, regular pieces in newspapers. Uh, I guess online was still developing at that point, but, you know, coming. And, uh, recently we've seen that in the stock market, um, huge amount of media interest in in the rising stock market. a lot of those articles are often saying, "Isn't it a bubble?" or "It is a bubble." Um, but that's part of the interest. Um, so when you see that, that's a that's a concern. If you take that; it's it's a it's a worry. Number eleven is rapid credit growth. Um, credit growth, of course, particularly important in if you're talking about a housing or real estate bubble, but also in the stock markets. If people are borrowing rapidly, obviously that's going to drive you know, real estate prices tends also to drive uh, housing price, uh, stock prices as well. Number 12 is new lenders or new lending policies. Um, well, I've already mentioned the subprime uh, back in the uh, early 2000s. Um, with, with stocks, I mentioned also the uh, uh, zero uh, cost for the trading. Uh, so you, basically, you're getting new ways to, to enter the market, in effect.
0: And then you're looking at this as a broad spectrum across the economy. You wouldn't be particularly pointing out family offices that managed to get leverage of three times plus and blow ten billion dollars worth of losses into the you know banks and brokers over the last few weeks, right? Without naming names. I mean, it, that was sort of old lending policies being blended in with new lending policies for something that seems to be not as regulated as heavily as hedge funds or, or other traditional funds are well, but, that, yeah,
1: but that, I mean, that, that, that that's part of it i mean that's part of the rising credit isn't it um it's okay. not necessarily a new new policy but um but yeah when you when you see a lot of margin lending when you see a lot of leverage uh you know that that's a sign of uh, potential trouble number 13 is a relaxed monetary policy um obviously in the early 2000s u.s interest rates were kept low for quite a long time in 2001 to 4 only started to raise them then um currently uh, obviously to deal with covid interest rates are very low and we've got quantitative easing um so relaxed number 14 is a falling household savings rate um now this is important because really it signals that that households are very confident. Um, it's also partly due to the fact that they're borrowing anyway, because the way the savings rate is calculated, if people borrow, then that lowers the savings rate. Um, right. But it's a signal, basically. It's a signal that that people are confident, uh, they're borrowing, uh, that they're, they're spending and they're not saving very much.
0: Now, I know that because of the COVID pandemic and the way that some support has been given in the US in terms of um, stimulus checks, And in the UK, furlough, you know, options for some companies that, you know, were maybe thinking about laying people off, but they can take advantage of the government programs instead. Maybe the falling household savings rate isn't a huge factor just yet. But do you think
1: that could come back into play? Um, You're right. I think it's rather confused at the moment because the savings rate went up, particularly in the US, because there was this huge flood of new income created by the government given to people. At the same time, people pulled back from spending partly because they were cautious, partly because they couldn't spend, uh, couldn't go out. Um, so you've got this re- this big rise in the savings rate. I mean, the fact that the savings rate has been coming down since last spring is perhaps a signal. I wouldn't I, I'm not sure if it's it's completely relevant at the moment. Uh, okay. I think I think it, I think it'd be fair to say that confidence is rising quite quickly at the moment. And that is a support for, for stocks and also for housing, clearly. Um, I'm not sure I'd make too much of this, this one this time, particularly. The last one is a strong exchange rate. Um, I mean, we saw that back in the early 2000s when the dollar was strong. Um, dollar's been a bit strong recently, although it was weaker last year. Um, the rationale behind this one is that a strong exchange rate means that uh, interest rates are relatively high in that country compared to others, and money is tending to come in. So, it, again, it tends to go with. Uh, of um, all. You, you also get a current account deficit very often because the exchange rate is, is strong, a trade deficit, current account deficit. Um, so one to watch again. I mean, I'm, I'm not arguing that the US stock market as a whole is in a bubble at the moment. Um, I would not argue that. Um, and the reason for that, I think, is, is it starts from the valuations that with interest rates so low, with, with negative interest rates on Uh, bond yields, I think it's okay for valuations to be relatively high compared with the past. I don't think the U.S. market is especially attractive for the medium run anyway, and there's obviously a lot of momentum just at the moment. But uh, if I was looking at it over a two, three, five year view, I think other markets are more attractive just because the U.S. market is expensive. Um, But I don't see the U.S. market as a whole in a bubble. But there there might be
0: segments of the market that are,
1: quote-unquote, bubbly? Exactly. Um, I I worry about the technology area, which went up a lot last year. And although we've seen a rotation to some extent over the last few months, more towards the value side, more towards the stocks that will will do better when we get rid of Covid, actually technology stocks, many of them continue to rise. And we've also seen a lot of uh, really bubbly activity uh, in some of the IPOs, for example. Um, some of the pricing there, um, so I, 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 I worry about that. Okay. I'm also yep. starting to get a little bit concerned about the U.S. housing market, although I think we're still in the early stages here. Um, the U.S. Uh, house prices relative to other prices, so just in real terms, are pretty much back up to where they were at the peak in 2006. Uh, real incomes are not much higher in the U.S., I mean, even once we get past COVID. So it's starting to look as though the U.S. house prices are relatively high. Um, I think that's got further to go, frankly. I think house prices will keep rising for a few more years, um, but I think that's that's one to watch for the medium term.
0: Okay, so it's basically it's, another, it's, it's a warning signal rather than a run-from-this-market-right-now signal.
1: Yeah, and one of the factors here is that when you start looking at um, property cycles, there is something like an 18 year cycle in, in property. And this, this, is, uh, this was first observed in the 1930s, oddly enough. And one of the things I looked into in my book was whether this, this, this works. And it, remarkably, it does. There is, it's not exactly 18 years, it can be as little as 16, it can be as many as 20. But it's quite often you get that kind of cycle. Um, now, the last peak in the US was 2006. Uh, so, 18 years will be 2024. Um, potentially, as early as next year, could be a, a peak after after 16 years. So, so I think that's that's one to watch. Now you've got me worried. Thanks, John, uh, I don't yeah, know the thank guys you. at Edinburgh felt. <laughs> But let me just say it doesn't necessarily mean that uh, a uh, correction there is going to have the same effect as it did in t- 2008, because uh, the banking system is much better protected now. Um, capital ratios are much higher. There's generally more caution. So at the moment, I mean, if house prices in the U.S. fell 30% uh, over the next two years, I wouldn't be terribly worried because I think um, U.S. Uh, banks are fairly well protected.
0: And just for again, for the podcast, people who can't see it, the the slide that John is sharing with me has um, the titles of his books, Bubbles and How to Survive Them in 2004 and When Bubbles Burst.
1: Bubbles and How to Survive Them was the first book. And then When When, when Bubbles Burst is, is the follow-up.
0: In 2009. Yeah,
1: correct. Yeah. Okay. That's good. All right, John. Very good. Thanks, Uh, John.